1: How can we rethink religion through a lens of progressive science and evolutionary consciousness? In this conversation I speak with Sister Ilya Delio. It's not her official title but I have decided to call her a theologian futurist. She's a Franciscan sister and one of those fascinating people who has doctorates in the fields of both theology and science. She explores how many of the things religion holds on are outdated, and run the risk of relevance. She believes that every seminary curriculum should include Big Bang cosmology, evolution, quantum physics, and neuroscience. In this incredible conversation, we talk about the intersection of scientific discovery, evolution, technology, artificial intelligence, and religion, and go deep on the many possible ways we might understand what the notion of God could be. For those of you who might have deeply held ideas about certain things, this might be one of the more challenging, wiser conversations for you to engage with. So, dive in.
2: When our understanding of nature has shifted, we need to reframe the sacred dimensions of life and, therefore, the religious dimensions of life. And unless religions do that, you know, people will look for spiritual values in other ways and it will not be in the institutional religions.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wiser Conversations, Together at Home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher, and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic. Welcome. This conversation took place with a live online audience of tens of thousands around the world. Sign up at wiserconversations.org to participate live in the future. You may not know, but New Zealand last year became a country that more than half of the population in the census for the first time um, identified as being non-religious. So it's really one of those countries that's kind of moving away from organized religion. Uh, when you talk to people, you know, they often say, oh, I, I don't, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, but I don't believe in God. And um, I always find this really interesting because what I think they mean is I don't believe in that painting that I see in my head of this old dude with really long white hair who points his fingers and leans down towards you and over you. And somehow, how have, we, how have we got kind of landed with this image that now means that millions of people will just say, oh, no, I don't, I don't believe in that. And therefore, I've dealt with that box. And therefore, I'm not really considering that as an option anymore in any other form, which I think is super fascinating. And in all the work that I've read and heard you talk about, it's like, wow, there are so many other ways to think of what that might be. So I thought I'd start small, start there.
2: Yeah, great question, Derek. Yeah, because I have a lot of students who say the same thing. Uh, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, and you know, that's what they they begin the class like that. I'm like, okay, fine. I'm not. I'm not religious either in that way. I mean, the big guy in the sky, you know, the old grand granddad watching over us. Uh, that we can attribute, I think, largely to medieval art you know, and the many images that art, you know, portrayed of this elderly male figure. Um, And then coupled with that, you know, a God who gets angry with us, a God who judges us, a God who allows, you know, bad things to happen to good people. Who would want a God like that? Right. You know, And unfortunately, I think it's a real distortion, you know, uh, certainly of the Christian God that we've really politicized, if I can say that, you know, for the last number of centuries. Um, And I think a lot of our work today, certainly my work, is trying to rebirth God. And so I think part of the thing is, you know, just the name God is a name. It points to an inexpressible mystery, you know, an incomprehensible mystery, and yet um, a deep presence that we know, we feel it, you know, we feel that, we experience that that presence, uh, that mysterious presence. And so one thing is, you know, I think we can realize that maybe the name God weighs us down or thwarts our lives, find another name for that mystery, you know. Is it love? Is it compassion? Is, is it goodness? I don't know. Is it aliveness? Um, but we need a name that we can relate to because it's about a relationship. And that's really what religion's about. Religion is about relationality to the, you might say to that, which binds us, that, which gets us up in the morning, you know, what are we bound to? That's the question of religion. You know, who do we ultimately belong to? Mm. Um, What gives fire to our lives? You know, I mean, during this pandemic, you know, why get up in the morning when we have more bad news? You know, we have more deaths. And, you know, we know that this virus isn't the end of life, that there's something more to life. And religion is about the moreness of life. Mm. And God, the name God, is the name of that moreness. That monotheistic faith, certainly Christianity in particular, has given, you know, um, uh, a name too. But I think we have really, uh, we have made that name into a big being, you know, like God's a big one of us.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's like uh, he's got a bit of a branding or it, he, she has a bit of a branding issue, especially for younger generations. Uh, who are dropping out of organized, as like we said in New, in New Zealand, I um, I think it's really. I would love to come back to this whole idea, but I think it's really interesting to go back in time for you. I know you started as a scientist, right? I think you have. I might have this wrong, but I think you have a doctorate in both theology and in the sciences, and pharmacology, and all sorts of interesting science. How did you go? How did you go from there into uh, theology? And I think this combination gives you this totally unique view on, on the world in which you've constructed all your thinking and writing and talking, which is fascinating.
2: Well, I love science, I have to tell you. I've always loved science. I love um, uh, the, 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 the details of life and, and the way they work. Um, I love the creativity of nature. Um, so I actually believed for the longest time that science would lead us to truth. It was the knowledge we needed for a better life. Um, and, you know, there's still, you know, I, I still adhere to a lot of what science has to offer us. Um, so I did get a bachelor's, a master's, and a doctorate um, in biology, in the biologies, and then in physiology, and then in pharmacology. So my area was uh, neuroscience, actually. I was in the spinal cord research area. Um, I had a postdoc at Johns Hopkins University that I. Gave up because I came across the life of Thomas Merton, um, this monk um, who wrote this fabulous book called The Seven-Story Mountain, and I saw my life in Merton's life, and I just thought, that's really what I want to do, you know, so I gave up a career in research science and found myself in a very strict monastery, (laughs) and then I said, once the drugs wore off, then I wondered (laughs) how I was going to get out of the monastery. Um, So, you know, um, I, for one thing, I think being raised in a world of science, in a world of research science, I'm not afraid of science. In fact, I want to hear what science has to say to us because it's our best knowledge of how nature works. You know, otherwise we have contrived ideas about nature and sometimes they're so romantic and idyllic. Um, That, you know, we lose touch with the fact that, you know, we live in an open systems type universe where chaos, disorder, emergence, complexity are part of the stuff of life. And I think this is where I think theology has sort of gone off course. It it doesn't really pay attention to what science is really telling us. And um, I think it's been very enriching for me. It's not a path I would have chosen, quite honestly, to First, get a doctorate in science and then get one in religion.
0: <laughs> mm.
1: When you when you encountered the monastery, when you kind of moved from you know, that life of science and you almost collided in that sense by choice, I mean I imagine you must have come up against things where your science background and brain would be looking at things going, Well, how do we how how did we reconcile certain things that people are struggling to recognize by not thinking about science? And of course, you go back in your talks to you know, Copernicus and uh, and uh, Kepler and all those historical uh, situations um, that create that that schism in the beginning.
2: Right. I mean, you know, the one thing I think I, um, I think when I went to the monastery, I had to move from my left brain to my right brain, so to speak. Um, I, I was so used to analyzing things and, and thinking through logically about things that um, I could not, you know, if we talked about the incarnation or Jesus, you know, for example, like God becomes flesh, I'm thinking, well, how, what does that mean, you know, in terms of divine nature and human nature? And how could you possibly bring these two things together? So um, I think I put quite honestly, the way I handled things my own way is I had to put science on hold and really enter into uh, theology or the life, you know, religious life, monastic life and all that it had to offer. And maybe that was a good thing to do because I didn't allow science to kind of, I wasn't constantly measuring what I was learning in the spiritual life against what I knew from science. I just put science to the side for a second you know, moment. And then, I, and then I just entered into what the desert fathers and mothers had to tell us. And it's a very rich uh, spiritual tradition you know, that Christianity has to offer. It's really when I um, started studying theology and medieval theology, I began to see the medievalists were were fascinating in terms of bringing the big cosmos and the human person together. They were natural, natural philosophers, you know, and so their observations of the cosmos, their understanding of astrology, and then bringing that together with the things of faith, that was my first opening that science and religion could actually work together. It was actually in medieval theology.
1: But that interplay and that conversation between science and theology has informed a lot of the a lot of where you've headed in the past, you know, decade or, or so in terms of uh, evolution and now even quantum physics, things like that. Share share where you're at on on how those worlds collide at the moment and um you know, complexity and consciousness for you, the whole chain kind of seems to daisy chain together. Can you we're we're all lay people tell us the story
2: so you know one of my guides to this story the new narrative what i might call a new narrative um is the jesuit scientist pierre desjardins and um he was a jesuit and yet um a paleontologist by training and he wrote a lot because he had um You might say he saw the relationship between Christianity and evolution in a coherent way. And he really tried to, in his writings, um, show how these two things actually work together. And so using Teilhard's insights, I've tried to build an understanding of religion within an evolutionary age Um, And especially in terms of artificial intelligence, I see, first of all, let me say, I see none of these things as being incompatible, but rather they're um, an integrating whole. So I take science as a sort of one dimension of the reality and I take religion. By religion, I don't mean a narrow institutional religion. I mean that, um, that energy of connectivity to ultimate meaning and value—that that's my broad definition of religion—and so um, beginning to understand these, you know, science and religion within the context of evolution has put a whole new understanding on God, on um, the question of Jesus as the Christ, um, and artificial intelligence is a continuation of an evolutionary movement towards greater consciousness and greater complexity. That's something that Teilhard noted in his own lifetime. It's not, you know, again, um, in terms of science, it's a very complex, you know, a complex area. Uh, But as a pattern, so evolution as a pattern of change and movement is, um, if you stand back, you can just look over time from, you know, the smallest of life on earth, you know, from bacteria to the emergence of Homo sapiens sapiens. Um, And certainly, I mean, anyone who takes evolution seriously would have to say, well, we're certainly not the end point. Like we're not that ta-da, you know, we're not the final two words of the sentence with a period after us. We are in evolution. That is the beauty of the whole thing. And that's where religion, I think, has really gone off course. It, it, It has stayed in a static fixed cosmology and therefore metaphysically it's rather static which makes God the fixed guy in the sky idea. And so it's our problem, you know, that we cannot cannot accept change as part and parcel of what a divine dimension to life might be for us, like mm. a God of change, like maybe God changes, maybe God's in evolution, you know.
1: What do you think the response should be to that? Um, you know, in terms of the idea of, well, if these, if these frameworks are fixed and they refuse to evolve or they get dragged through as opposed to kind of ushering things in or seeking them, um, how, do you, how do you propose that gets rethought?
2: Well, I think the first thing is that um, I think religion needs to pay attention to what science is telling us fundamentally about nature it is our best teacher of nature. It may not tell us um, in terms of values, but it tells us how nature works. And that's really important, right? So if you go back to the doctrine of creation from Genesis, like you have God and creation. Okay, well, the only way we can know about this God, quote, unquote, is from creation, right? There's, there's no god apart from human consciousness right so we can't we can't even entertain that notion of god apart from human human understanding and consciousness so if nature changes then it, it gives us insight well if nature is this way then maybe god is also changing maybe god is you know god and nature always work together so you can't have one variable change and the other remain fixed they work in tandem right so if evolution is the best description of nature, it, it gives us insight into what God is like. Maybe this is a God who certainly is at home in a world of change, uh, certainly at home in a world of chaos. Well, then maybe God doesn't have the whole plan. You know, maybe God doesn't really know, you know, what this future is going to be. Maybe God is acting with us to create this world unto what it has the potential to be. Um, and that's a type of thinking religious people are reluctant to embrace. There's something about, um, you know, the way religious myths and narratives have created frameworks of stability um, that people find comfort in. Yet those stable frameworks are the very frameworks that thwart sometimes um, a more flourishing life on the planet. And so, you know, what Thayur Desher tried to do is try to Get us to understand that you know faith and evolution are not in conflict. They can work very nicely together, and we might have to adjust our understanding of God. But that's only so that we have a more, um, when I say reasonable, a, a credible God and not an incredible mm-hmm. God. You know, we don't want a Zeus in the sky. We want a power of divinity that empowers us from within you know that's our future that is about life uh and i think you know that's a lot of my work is trying to restructure that god world relationship in terms of a god of life right Mm. you know that what we're about is life and life together on this planet
1: how do you think we're going with that uh, transition
2: uh not too well (laughs) (laughs) I have to admit, Um, you know, and several problems. One, and and it's not just Christianity. I think all religions are complicit in this kind of static, we're not going to change, you know, idea. Well, get over it, okay? You know, like (laughs) really the past is behind us. The only thing we have together is our future. The future belongs to all of us and it's our binding force. And therefore I think, you know, if, You know, if religion has something vital to offer, and by vital, I mean the energy of spirituality. By spirituality, I mean the energy of deep connectivity. The values that come with that, the values of compassion, the values of mercy, the values of love, you know, a love that seeks the good of the other, you know, beyond uh, the self-sufficient self. Um, A value of, of forgiveness, the values of peace. And all world religions, truthfully, have these values within them. Our problem is, you know, why don't we why don't we harness these values into maybe a new... Now, Teilhard called for a new religion of the earth. And maybe what we do need is a new type of religion. Maybe what we do need is a post-institutional religion that really enlivens these values, calls us back into community. Mm. And maybe we need new narratives, new myths, mm. new stories. Uh, that bind us together in a new way. Um, but we if we keep holding on to the past, we are constantly thwarted in the deepest energies to unite and to grow together into something new.
1: You know, most of the conversations we have on, on Wiser are to do with how to, well, we try to make them to be about how to be in the world, how to behave in the world, how to live, um, and less about the um, theoretical or kind of macro things that you can't say, okay, well, what does that, how does that relate to my everyday being in the world? And I would love to um, explore that. I have seen somewhere you're speaking about being as being inseparable from kind of, well, you can't be on your own. You must be with others. You must be in relation to others. And that also uh, reminded me, I was just doing some research a couple of weeks ago and I found that the Japanese word for people is ninjen, which is like person, but the second part is being with. So in relation to, which I thought was fascinating that in their word for the person, it's stripped away the idea that the person can exist on its own.
2: Right. Well, you know, the word person actually means relational being. It comes go. Sonare, right? To sound through. Uh, And I always distinguish a person from an individual. I think we are individuals on our way or seeking to become persons. I don't want to presume that we're persons. Uh, We have the capacity to be person. Um, That means we have the capacity to be the relational beings that we truly are. Um, But we're always thwarted. Uh, You know, we're, we're always sort of partially there. And I think, you know, how do we grow into personhood? Um, Teilhard actually thought, you know, two things. One, he said, love is the core energy of the universe and personhood is what we are created for, as if the whole universe is one giant person in formation. So, you you know, if you can imagine, just imaginatively, imagine the whole globe forming as one transhuman or one cosmic person. I mean, the internet just gives us a little glimpse into what the capacity of that could be, right? Shared consciousness, shared, um, you know, shared feeling for what's happening in parts of the world. So um, yeah, being with is perfect. I love that Japanese word. So thank you for that, that we are, you know, David Bohm, the quantum physicists and contemporary of Einstein said, you know, in his book on implicate order, he said, you know, we look, we seem separate and we act separate, but this is an illusion. And I think that's really true. I think we are constantly living between um, the illusion of separateness and the deep desire for relationality, for wholeness, for wholeness. I mean, the deep belonging to, the deep connectivity of our our own beingness. And so he says, you know, we seem separate, but in our cosmic roots, we are already one. And there's something about that. You know, I always say, no matter where you go in the world, no matter what language, no matter what religion or no religion, the one thing that binds us is the human heart. And when you speak to the heart, the language of love, you have a sister and a brother, no matter where you are in the world. You know yourself to be related because it's something that's deeper than those intellectual arguments we you know mm-hmm. devise in our left brain, you know that well, you're this, you know are the judgments that we make. Um, the way we sort of box people in uh, into categories and then we dismiss them because they don't fit into our privatized world. And I think, and I I do think we're on the cusp of moving out of privatization and isolationism. And I think if we have any blessings in this COVID pandemic, it is the realization that we need one another. We we, we belong to one another. People are longing for social beingness again, right? For relationship. Mm -hmm. We could build on our deep relationality Uh, that it's together that, you know, together that we find life. When we are alone, we, you know, we always have a a whiff of life, but never the fullness of life. Life flourishes when, you know, there's shared being. So I always describe, you know, my definition of love is not looking at one another, but looking together in the same direction. Mm. Um, And I, I think that's what we're created for.
1: You think in the last, you know, decades we have been creating things that make us more separate and, you know, building higher fences around our houses and creating our own, you know, compounds of of life and bubbles and uh, where, do you th- where do you think that's come from and how do you think we untangle from it?
2: Yeah, I think we have developed a deep fear of one another. Uh, we have developed a mindsets, uh, we have developed sort of little Newtonian worlds, you know, where my little atomized life uh, is my stability, um, where, uh, you know, and here's, you might say, the self-thinking subject writ large, you know, that, you know, what I think is what I am and the I has a big role in all this. So relationships in that kind of understanding are just more extrinsic to me. Like if I wanna be your friend, fine. But if I don't want your friendship, I really don't care about you, you know. And so this kind of, you know, looking out for number one thinking. Um, And that has been the most, we're the most unhappy people, you know, on earth. And here's where I think we can learn from nature. You know, I always say the trees don't say to the flowers, God, you know, you're so ugly. You know, you're so yellow. I hate yellow. You know, there's a beauty in nature. There's a harmony and a synergism. Of distinctiveness. So it's actually in our distinct beings that we participate in the beauty of the whole. And um, we have, we have built walls around distinct beings because if you don't look my way, if you're not my color, if you're not my religion, you're not my language, uh, I don't want anything to do with you. And we we have fractured, we have splintered our world into a thousand pieces, and we're miserable because of it. Uh, really miserable Uh, because we know deep down inside we belong we we are made for to to belong to this whole and to one another
1: in this going back to where we were talking about this evolution of religion itself how can such a an evolution and a reframing help heal that fracturing or help rebuild that uh, interconnectedness and that way of being
2: I do think the best of religion is about connectivity, the best of it. Um, And by that, I mean, it's about if we take if I just take the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, which is the one I know best. It's about covenant. It's about relationality. I mean, the Old Testament for all the there's a lot of war. There's a lot of violence in the Old Testament. You know, don't get me wrong, but this is a God who doesn't give up. You know, this is the God who says, I am with you always, you know, uh, you straight away, but I am here deep compassion, a compassionate God. How do we, how do we reclaim and find a new, a compassionate God? And here, I think that here, I think the Christian message has something to offer because I don't think we've really understood what this Jesus Christ really means for us. The incarnation, this is a God who gives up being God to be God for us, you know, this is a God who gives God's self completely to us. And we have no idea what that means. I mean, how could God give God's self away and still be God? You know, that's our big question. <laughs> it's one of those conundrums. But that is the mystery of God, right? That's the mystery of love. It's an inc- unquenchable love, an incomprehensible love that can give itself totally to us to be with us and hiddenness, humility, uh, patience, perseverance, and empowering love that says, I will be with you through death. I am with you through darkness. I am with you and I suffer with you, but I will not abandon you. That kind of God. How do we know that God? Because we meet that God when we meet a person of compassion, when we find ourselves loved, even though we've gone astray, you know, we did wrong. There's no other God up there. That's mm. not here. That's the whole point. And there's something about us. Like we can't get our heads around like what, like that God is in me, like me, like my little life. I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. Your little life, <laughs> your little life has infinite value, infinite that you are the love of God now, you know? Your words, your gestures, the way you reach out, the way you can hold a door for someone, and the same thing you reject that God when you reject another person when you say I hate you, you know I I, I hate what you have to say. Um, you slam the door in God's face basically. And when we when we cut God God out of the picture, when we cut divine love out of the picture, then we are left to fend for ourselves. We are left with the cold, sterile, you know, mm-hmm. being
1: that we are. What What you share sounds like, a lot like divinity in all things. All things not necessarily being divine, this kind of pantheism versus panentheism picture. Um, sh- share more on that.
2: Yes, well, I, I do think a little, good pantheism can go a long way, you know? I mean, I think one of the things what we have done is kept this God at a very safe distance, you know, like this transcendent God, the one up there, but there's no there there, okay? The, the only there is here. And I think we need to reframe transcendence as fecundity, that there's an excess, an overflow of divine love. No one person or being can contain that love. It's always a more, and that's why it's always pulling us and pulling everything into more life. Um, and therefore, I think you know the only God that there is, uh, the God there is here. There's it, and therefore, uh, Teilhard spoke of a Christian pantheism. And I, 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 I'm not you know entirely for Spinoza's God, you know, but. I do think that there's an allness, that the divinity is in all things, and all things are sharing in this divine life. I don't think God's waiting for us to get it right before God becomes our God. I think God's like, well, okay, here we are, you know, so let's work at this together. And so I think we are not awakened to the divine dimensions of our lives. Uh, We're pretty sure we don't have a divine dimension and we have to make our way through this fallen sinful world to get, you know, to be rewarded by the big guy in the sky. And that's just the worst thing possible. That's every environmental crisis you could ever possibly imagine. Right. You know, no, instead of saying, no, the whole point of the incarnation is to be, God, not only for us, but with us and in us and through us, God will become something more. That is the Christian message. It's not just that we're changing, but God also, we, we actually contribute something to God. We make a difference to God's life because we're pretty sure God doesn't change. Mm. And I'm saying, um, guess what? I think God actually changes, you know, that God became us. That was a change, right? But, you know, theologians have this way of dancing around. said, oh, no.
1: How on. do you, how do you, is that kind of just trying to process this? Is it almost like the creation process itself or the pro- process of creating the newness, the cusp that we're always on, which is creating the next moment and the next moment and the next day and the next thing, and whether that's, from industries, the internet to artificial intelligence, or from me being five to seven to 47. Is that process part of what you're saying is, you know, God itself?
2: Exactly. God is creat- creativity. Love is creative. I mean, if you if love does new things, right? I mean, even two people who fall in love, if it was static and sameness... It, and it becomes mechanized it becomes rote and it beca- falls out of love right where there's love there's creativity where there's creativity there's new life so God is the newest thing there is God is the God is the the, the most created the ground of creativity itself and so you know as Alfred Whitehead said you know creative when we when we are part of creativity we are a part of divine life mm. and that's what immortality is. To what you know will be part of an ever, uh, ever creating changing
1: flow. It's it sounds a a little bit like there is some real parallels in what you're saying with um, some aspects of the Taoist ideas of flow and creativity and constant moving, almost like waterway that just flows through existence. And that version,
2: I do, I think that there that we would find, um a lot of residents. I think we should bring East and West together in these conversations because there's a tremendous richness from the mm-hmm. Asian religions that we have really ignored in the West, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And, and they're much more ancient and they have really co- contemplated these things. Um, I think what we're just saying here is that this creativity uh, is moving towards a some, it's an ever rising creativity mm-hmm. of expanding consciousness. That's the beauty of it. There's something without losing materiality, materiality itself, um, because I take materiality as you know where consciousness is expressed. So I don't take these as two separate things, but intertwined, um, a, a kind of a, a, a kind of panpsychism, if you will. Um, and so the whole of material life is moving towards greater consciousness and it's doing so by creativity.
1: So let's let's go from there to uh AI. Uh, so when we, when we had a brief chat before, you sounded almost like a venture capitalist. You know, I love Silicon Valley. I love technology. I, I, I love the future. And you're almost like making bets on the future of theology. So AI is, you know, we're on the cusp, this generation, this life, this century, it will be totally different, right? When I'm an old man, if I have the good fortune of staying or getting to that age, um, it will be real. And the stuff you're talking about now will hit hard into theology. It will really collide into what we thought life is, what we think life is. Oh, that's, that's not natural. That whole idea of what is natural is going to be really challenging. So what's, what's your, what are your thoughts when you think about AI and crystal ball and you think, wow, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, what's possible? What opens up in your mind?
2: Well, I, I mean, there's no doubt that we will be a new a new type, eventually a new type of species. I do think we're on our way to becoming technosapien, cyber Sapien. we're already there in some ways, we're already cyborg. Um, you know, I do foresee, I mean, certainly as robots are being developed and inter, interspersed into, you know, homosapien life that they'll be driving our cars, they'll be, you know, perhaps um, housemates, they're making, making coffee, everything else. But even more so, you know, I do foresee that we'll have implantable software, you know. Um, and here's the thing, uh, you know, transhumanism um, is...
1: So can you define that? define that for a minute?
2: Is the use of technology to enhance life. So uh, living longer, living healthier. Uh, some advocate for overcoming the death barrier, digital immortality. Um, and so... You know, it scares a lot of people and it says we don't want to go there. But the fact is we're already on the cusp of being, you know, on transhumanism. And the fact is we don't stay still. There's something about us that has a transcendent dimension. We are always moving beyond where we are because we're always trying to maybe improve what we are. You know, this idea of perfectibility. but you know I, is there a way we can develop technology or artificial intelligence that can enhance our deep relationality so there's a lot of discussion around social media for example like sherry turkle's work or nicholas carr that says it's making us less human we're becoming more isolated We we are lonelier than ever well that's true in some ways, because we have developed this at a very rapid rate. We have not really reflected on what we want with our uh, technology, and we haven't really developed a framework of values uh, with technology. Like how might we develop technology towards, say, interplanetary life? How might we use technology to deepen love, to deepen compassion? to deepen um, peace in the world. Um, So you can't have an unbridled development technology, It can't be all based on how much money Google's making and Microsoft is making. I mean, that's where I do think we, you know, I think religion, philosophy, ethics, all need to be involved in the discussions on technological development. AI is not the problem per se. We are developing AI, we humans. And the question is, what is driving this development? Why do we do this, you know? And we're doing, we've done it at such a fast rate over the last 60 years. I mean, Google's only with us, you know, about 20, 30 years. It's not that old. And yet it has radically changed our world. And we, we haven't been prepared for it. And I think that's part of our dilemma. We can't, we're on this breathless pace with technology so why don't we slow down technological development and think about how ai could actually enhance uh you know our our life together enhance divinity among us you know um i do think post human life which is so i see uh, an emerging type of person on the horizon with technology we're di- we're actually rewiring I, I i think that's not like a a novel idea because the brain just interacts with the environment. And as the environment, you know, as the milieu shifts, the brain will adjust accordingly. So we have, um, I do think young generations, they are wired for interplanetary life. They're already communal before they're individual. You know, they're interested and they're concerned with uh, global poverty and injustice older people are like oh i don't know if i want to get involved in that you know we, we they already think like as an individual and they have to get involved in a community so you can see that there's been a switch between personhood and community or individual community between older and younger generations and technology will continue to do that for us mm-hmm. and i do think over time we will find ourselves in a different logic of personhood that will actually be better we will think in terms of interbeing intersubjectivity, interrelatedness. And um, so I actually think we're on the cusp of a much better world, believe it or not, with mm.
1: technology. As, as individuals and as a community, what about how it collides with uh, the notion of you know traditional religion or the church or those infrastructures that you've already said and we've already spoke about are kind of slower to change
2: they have to change, quite honestly. And I think, you know, the resistance to change, and I understand these are these are long traditions and they can't just like tomorrow just decide by a fiat, it's all over and we need to reboot. Although I think something <laughs> of that wouldn't be so bad, quite honestly. Um, it, it, they just don't work. You know, religion, you know, um, Bratislav Krzynski, a British a sociologist actually wrote a book on nature and the sacred. And he said, you know, when our understanding of nature shifts, the sacred also shifts. And that's exactly, he was exactly right. That's exactly what's happening. You cannot keep old paradigms, old religious paradigms, when our understanding of nature has shifted. We need to reframe the sacred dimensions of life and therefore the religious dimensions of life. And unless religions do that, they will be, you know, people will look for spiritual values in other ways, and it will not be in the institutional religions. They have a choice to make. You know, you either wake up and get with the program, or you suffer the death of the institution. And that's just the way it's good. I mean, hey, welcome to evolution. You know, you won't be the first institution to die out.
1: Um, What do you think are some examples of ways people are already... You know, if they if they're leaving or they never went to religious institution, finding spirituality in other ways. When you think around and you look at culture, pop culture, there's like guys, how do you see people finding that spiritual, um, filling that spiritual bucket elsewhere?
2: I think movements and I think organizations like Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation is a way where uh, you know people who are not spiritual but not religious can plug into. People find groups, you know, and the only thing is, and here's my only plug for, you know, institutionalized religion, is that um, in a world as fluid as ours, you know, where communities, you know, you say, I can plug into this community, it gives me life, it gives me values, and all of a sudden something goes wrong, you know, or, you know, and then you're like, well, I'm out of here. So there's a great fluidity. And actually, that could lead, that could be counterproductive. Uh, because it becomes a new type of individualism, right? If it doesn't meet my needs, I'm out of there. And that's the only, uh, you know, one of the advantages of institutional membership or being committed, you know, I think that's how do we foster, and I'm not, you know, I'm not just rooting for the institution, but we need sort of a, there's something about these long traditions, you know, that, you know, there's been a commitment to this tradition over time. There's something about that that's worthwhile. And that we shouldn't toss out too quickly because we we may long for those spiritual values, but if they don't meet our needs, we're going to, you know, we're going to move on to something else where, you know, a lot of what we seek, if we remain committed to a community or to religious tradition, and we kind of persevere through it because a lot of what we, what we're looking for will take a, a fair amount of suffering, right? You need perseverance. There's a role of suffering in that movement to a higher love. Uh, to a higher level of personhood. Um, and my only concern is that we, we want to we dissociate ourselves from suffering or from having to sac- make too many sacrifices. So institutional religions have these dimensions. They need to reframe. And the one thing I think they need to do is accept evolution. Uh, for, for Christians, I think you know, one of the things would be helpful would be to put original sin to bed you know, it's over. Okay. <laughs> even myth, <laughs> Adam and Eve aren't, don't even work that well. So, you know, there are other ways to look at, you know, the meaning of, of Christ in evolution. There's much more expansive ways uh, that are focused on love and not sin, you know, so there was such a, you know, Christians in particular, are so kind of guilt ridden, you know, and I'm like, you got to get over this. We're just, we're, we're beings, we're being, in evolution we're we're being formed and we have to think in a different way we have to think about ourselves in a different way not as static but as dynamic becomings god as becoming with us Mm. Uh, we have to reframe our thinking we cannot remain as static thinkers in a world of change
1: you sound like also like um CEO of a company that's on the edge of an abyss going, we've got to disrupt ourselves. We've got to eat our own lunch, otherwise it's going to be eaten for us. Um, and we've got to cross that 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 chasm. So it's fascinating. Uh, so we've got a couple of questions. Um, Donald asks, how does God in evolution work with the theological concept of omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent? we touched on some of those, but uh, yeah.
2: Well, I think, you know, certainly we have to revisit those terms of omnipotence and omniscience. Does God know everything? Uh, and I, you know, I do think if God, you know, it sounds to me very deterministic that all I have to do is just find out what God wants and, you know, all will be well. And we know that just doesn't work that way. And I think, you know, I, for me, God. Well,
1: you were saying like. Uh, the Newtonian piece where you know you, you hit a billiard ball and it hits another billiard ball and people say, well, I've done all the right things. I've gone to church. I've done the, the things that I was asked and why am I still stuck with this situation or why am I in this suffering? It's kind of like the, the, it's a trading, it's a ledger, right? I did my side of the ledger. Why am I not getting the other, the other side back?
2: And just the opposite. And I think God's power, and this is just not mine. I mean, Cardinal Walter, Walter Kasper and Jürgen Moltmann and others speak to this. God's power is God's love, God's unconditional love. I think we've had two, I, we've, we've got this idea of a like of a Greek god of power that we impose that on God. but a Christian God of power is a God of love. This is a God who didn't save the sun from you know a, a, death, a criminal death. This is a God who, who empowers us through death and darkness into new life. a God who is faithful in love. So God's God's power, omnipotence, is God's love. God's omniscience is, I think, also rooted in love. Love is a sense, not just I know intellectually what's going to happen, but love is a sense I know you. And I think God's knowledge of us is knowing us in what we have the capacity to be and to become. And that God of fidelity in love, that omniscience is that fidelity in love. Uh, And therefore, I think, you know, that ubiquity of God, that omnipresence of God is, The fidelity of God itself. And no matter where we are and what happens, that God will be, is with us. uh, That deep center of our lives. Mm. Um, And that's our hope. That is our future. That no matter what happens, no matter how many bad decisions we make, that God will not leave us. And Mm. that God will be with us. And that God is our future.
1: I'll take the final question uh, from Luca, I guess this is what lots of people would say in response to what you say, is it too dangerous to say that God changes? Uh, why do we need to say that God is in evolution?
2: Um, well, you know, because evolution is about change. And truthfully, if you hold to the incarnation, I mean, a static metaphysics of being would say, no, God's divinity doesn't change, maybe just God's humanity. Um, when in fact, I I don't want to split God up into divine human. Uh, I think God is a whole, right? And the beauty of God is God loves change, right? I mean, this is not me. Meister Eckhart, the great Dominican mystic said, God is always new. Uh, And he says, you know, God is always new. And when we're united with God, we become new again. A God of change is a God who wants to become something more in us. Um, and I think not to, that doesn't diminish God, because God's godness is, in a sense, not diminished by our our becoming. God God's godness is enhanced by our becoming. So as we become, God becomes in us more God. Uh, and I think what, someone says, well, how can God become more God? Because God is love. And God's love can never be static. That's all we're saying here. That love is a dynamic love. Otherwise, we have some idea like this, the Trinity or like three men sitting around a tea table, you know, and it's all done, all over with, all fixed up. God is always becoming God. It's a dynamism, right? God's love is constantly beginning anew. It's And how do we know this? From creation. The only way we can know God is here. Uh, and anything outside of creation um is in a sense contrived Uh, that is i think what the doctrine of creation is about creation is the mirror of divinity creation expresses the divine precisely if we call that god is creator so anything outside what evolution or what science is telling us would be slightly i'd have to say imported from another age
1: elia thank you so much for the last hour it's been fascinating we've gone in all sorts of crazy directions (laughs) um really challenging, I think, uh, and inspiring uh, and hopeful too. Lots of things to, to hold on to tightly. So thank you very much for your time. And thank you so much again, Elia, for joining us. Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations, together at home. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it today. And if you haven't already, go on and push subscribe. See you next time.